0: They're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose Interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today. You know what my favorite text is? A
1: waypoint in the Onyx Hunt app to a goblin turkey. Visit Venison dot com. That's M A U I N U I Venison dot com, and use promo code Bear for twenty
2: percent off your first order. I've got a Valentine's card that he sent me when we was about in the fourth grade, I think. On that Valentine's card he sent me, he said, we bear hunters, ain't we, Roy? That was his dad. Alvin David's dad. Yeah, his dad. He said, we bear hunters, aren't we, We bear wrong? hunters, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> and what grade, would you, how old would you have been? We was in the fourth grade, so ever, ha- ever when that was.
1: On this episode of the Bear Grease Podcast, we'll continue to explore southern Appalachia. This is part two in the final episode in our series on this region. We'll talk to Mr. Roy Clark and Ira Jones about bear dogs, and we'll dive into the deep end with Dr. Dan Pierce as we try to understand the real story of moonshine, NASCAR, and bear hunting. We'll also talk about a slithery subject, one that you'll have to wait until the end to discover.
3: The very foundation Mm. of NASCAR is illegal liquor that is interesting nascar doesn't like to talk about that but it's it's foundational
1: my name is clay newcomb and this is the bear grease podcast where we'll explore things forgotten but relevant Search for insight in unlikely places and where we'll tell the story of Americans who live their lives close to the land. This is Mr. Roy's grandson, Rail Childress. You would have heard him sing on the previous episode as well. On part one of this series on southern Appalachian culture, we define the region as the southern one-third of the Appalachian mountain range. We met the Clark family from East Tennessee, and discuss their farming, bear hunting, and we heard them play some music. We then talked to Dr. Daniel Pierce about the history of the region, where the people came from, and how the culture of the region was formed. If you haven't listened to that one, you ought to go back and check it out. On this second and final episode in the series, we'll be talking again with Mr. Roy Clark, but we'll also meet his friend Ira Jones as we dive deeper into their bear hunting And I'll jump back to Dr. Pierce and we'll discuss moonshine and NASCAR and one secret topic. Before I jump in, I want to reiterate a few things. Number one, the Appalachian region is a very diverse and modern part of the United States. I've chosen to highlight rural Appalachia just because I love it and I know some great people that are a part of it. Secondly, You may remember the conclusion we came to at the end of the last podcast. Understanding the mechanisms of why things are the way they are grants us a better opportunity of valuing that culture and the culture of someone else. I think that's important. I'm not trying to make heroes or villains. I'm just trying to tell an American story. Tell me what makes, what
2: makes a good-looking plot hound to you. Well, just see how tight he's made and how he's not real big and he's, uh, uh, he's put together good and stands up good on his front feet and straight and stuff. Yeah. See how straight that little bitch's front feet is? The, okay, straight, Please? so you want their straight. This, their, their
1: legs just to go down yeah, straight. Yeah, some of them
2: fold out that way and some of them ain't. But...
1: This is Mr. Roy Clark and his friend Ira Jones looking over a fine pack of plot bear dogs. Who's your favorite color? He is. I've so that, that. that color right there, how would you describe that color? Black
4: brantle. I 20 yards, it looks black. And you get up to it and you can see the brantle in it. Yeah. So right here, you know, I mean, you can see it, but if he was right down yonder, he's just a black dog. Yeah. And I paid attention to that when he told me that. A long time ago, and that's I, I look for that a lot. They said twenty yards, they just look black, and then you get right yeah, upon you them, you know, start seeing and them strike They're
2: in a barn, you time up. They're black dogs. that are black. You yeah.
4: know. Roy's life in 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 Appalachia. He he's he, he is Southern Appalachia, in my opinion. Yeah. And and that's I mean, from the the music to the just the way you're welcome. You'll never come here that you won't yeah. feel welcome. That's I right. don't care if it's at midnight. You'll feel welcome. His wife will make you feel that way. He'll make you feel that way. His his nephew, all the family will. Scott,
1: son-in-law, yeah. and wonderful people, and that's Southern Appalachian right there. That's the voice of Mr. Ira Jones, who is a friend and hunting partner of Roy Clark. These two breed and raise hunting dogs together. However, to understand the closeness of their friendship, I'll need to fill you in on a cultural nuance that may not be intuitive. It's this. Raising bear dogs together requires a high-level human bond. Much trust is involved. Family lines of dogs are typically closely guarded, Not because they want to be kept from others, but simply because they've got no dogs to spare and they simply aren't for sale. In a pet world, you can buy stud services or puppies from breeders, but in many parts of the bearhound world, this isn't the case. All this to say is that Ira is a great friend of Roy.
4: Well, I just, you know, listening here and, and, and thanking Roy and, and our friendship, and one thing that really stands out a lot to me with Roy is, you know, to have a friend, you got to be a friend, and Roy really understands that, as is, is good as anybody I know, and, you know, we all like the good times in our life, and when things are good, you know, when things ain't going so good, or a little sickness and trouble, you count on Roy, he'll call on you, and he, he just, he's consistent in that, and, you know, I was listening to him talking about some of the hunting, and... And, and he's, he's the very best at this right here. He wants everybody to have a good time. He, most people you hunt with would rather show you their dogs. And you're hunting with me today. And, and Roy, he worries about everybody on the hunt to have a good time. He wants his dogs to do good, and they will. Mm-hmm. They're well-polished hands. He, he wants everybody else to have a good time, too, and get their dogs yeah. in. And, be, and that stuff is just it's just foreign to a lot of people. Yeah. You know the the it's, it's very competitive anyway, and Roy does his best to keep that out of it. And, yeah. And he's a man of his word, and what he says he means, and he's truthful in it. And he, he's I mean he's awesome. He really is. I've yeah. never met anybody like him, and and, and I, I truly mean that. He he knows how to be a friend, and that's something that most of us forgot. We want friends, but we don't really like being a friend
1: sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Ira went on to talk some about plot hounds.
4: No doubt, I mean, when, you, when you're when you talking about dogs, and I've hunted a lot, you're going to see some good ones in all of them, bad ones in all of them, and, and we're not claiming the plot dog is a superior, a number one mate ever needs you got, but it's if you get behind it, I've always said this, just because the dog is brental don't mean that, I'm all, I might look at him a little closer, but it's about bloodlines. And that's something that we're, we're pretty rich into is the bloodlines. We're not just hunting a color. We're hunting a particular right. type of dog that his family for generations has is, is, is had big influence in. And I like to feel like we've had a little influence in, in a bloodline as well on our side of things. And, th- these, you know, that's kind of where it's at is these bloodlines. I was looking today before I come over at some papers. I was trying to track down some papers and just looking back and – how far back we're going on some of these dogs. And I like that. And, uh, you know, heavy fan of line breeding. I know Roy is. Tell me what song you're singing, Jill. Uh, Hound Dog
1: Blues. Hound Dog Blues.
4: Okay.
1: What's this song
2: about? The Hound Dog Blues.
1: Hound Can't be plot now, sad. This is Jill, Mr. Roy's daughter.
2: See. Well, your old hound dog, he sure looks a lot like you, your old hound dog, he sure looks a lot like you, every time I see him, I always get the hound dog blues.
1: Mr. Roy is 72 years old and a native of East Tennessee. I asked him about his history with the breed of dog that he's been involved with his whole life. Tell me about your history with plot hounds in, well, in East Tennessee. It's just,
2: like, it's just like what I said, I was born into bear hunting and I was sort of born into plot hound dogs too. I ain't saying that that made them be better dogs than other dogs. That's just sort of what I grew up with. And uh, they we sort of had some plots in. My grandpa had a plot or two, and Daddy had a plot or two. But then when Charles Gant come into the picture, which was in the early 50s, and then he bred plots, and him and Daddy went places and got dogs that they Bread, Charles, bred to start with to get his foundation going, and he made a a big breeder of plot hounds. So we had plots to hunt, and we could get anything we wanted off of Charles, and hunt it whether we kept it or not, just back and forth, you know. Mm-hmm. And I guess I just grew to the plot dog, but then I've owned a number one Walker and a number one Blue tick and and a few more that's been mixed up through the years, early years that could match up to the plot dogs. But I guess as a whole, I've just got to see more out of plots, and, and I have anything else. I actually believe my belief on the plot dogs is is uh, they all ain't gonna make number one bar dogs, but I believe you'll get more out of plot dogs than you will in the other breed. Mm. I really believe that. Mm. Now, they these people that probably won't worry when we dire. You
1: folks are a very diverse audience so I've got to explain something very serious that just happened A small percentage of you just got your feelings hurt when Mr. Roy declared his devoted allegiance and love of the plot dog because you don't hunt plots and you wish that this podcast was about the breed of dog that you hunt And there's a much smaller group of you who are plot dog junkies that just got validated and are pumping that five-star rating on iTunes right now. This is exactly why I love houndsmen. They're so dang passionate. But most of you people don't have any reference at all of what a good breed of bear dog is. So you have to trust me when I say that this is a contentious topic that nary a podcaster dared delve into. You see, there are multiple breeds of hounds. The United Kennel Club registers treeing walkers, blue ticks, black and tans, red bones, English, and American leopard hounds. All of these breeds can be used for bear hunting and plots are a minority percentage by far most would agree that some variation of the walker hound dominates the hound world walkers are a beautiful tri-colored white black and brown dog they're wildly popular and that's probably why this podcast isn't about them the plot dog is known for the cult-like devotion of their owners and the unique story of the formation of the breed but that's for a future conversation Consider yourself informed. So the the plot hound was developed in these mountains in this region. What does a plot dog mean to you besides just being a dog that you can use to go catch a bear? I mean, do you feel like you have some deep emotional connection to
2: a to a plot hound? Yeah, I feel that, and I've got too many now. But it's sort of like owning, a owning say, a racking horse or a walking horse, and you get used to them. Well, then a, a quarter horse or a non-gated horse that trots and jars you to death, you don't like that. You like that good, smooth ride of that uh, run and walk or that racking horse. You get close to the plot, and... To me, they'll make a house dog, a bear dog, and maybe the quietest dog you ever seen might be the best bear dog you ever seen. And I'm sure if you had walkers or you had blue ticks, or you had something else, and that's what you bred, and that's what you got used to, that's what you'd like. But I just got into the plots, and I had an easy access to them, and, and that's just what I liked.
1: Well, it really is part of the mountain culture over here, and the story of the plot hound is so
2: unique. I guess, you know, that we we was live so close to where the plot started from that they give us a better we had a better shot at yeah. getting plots and stuff. Well, I just say this much about the hunting and about and and Iris sitting right over there can vouch for me a little bit. I've bar hunted a long time and I've mostly hunted plot dogs. But everybody can hunt whatever they want to. That's just what I mostly hunted. And I feel like in my lifetime that uh, that we've owned some as, as good a dogs as you could bear hunt and i feel good about the dogs that we've owned and bred and trained ourselves, and not had to go out and buy dogs didn't have the money to buy them no way and all the dogs we've used is what we've trained ourselves so i feel like that's a good accomplishment and i feel like i've owned dogs that i would have hunted with anybody that owned that wanted to bear hunt and I don't feel like I'd been ashamed of. That's saying something. That's what I think, anyway. In effort to understand
1: hunting and the human bond it produces, I want to let you listen to a short clip which is completely taken out of context. So you have to pay attention for it to make sense. But the moment involves real tears. In 2019, on my former podcast, the Bear Hunting Magazine podcast, I interviewed Mr. Roy and the Laurel Mountain Bear Hunters, which is basically the longtime friends that he hunts with. It includes fathers, sons, daughters, old and young alike. In this clip, Mr. Roy is talking about a Valentine's Day card he got when he was in the fourth grade from a man named Floyd Ray Ford, who is not in the room, but Floyd's son, Alvin David, is in the room and is now in his mid-50s. Alvin David is not mic'd up, but Mr. Roy's attention turns to Alvin David, and he begins to speak to
2: him. I've got a Valentine's card in there that he sent me when we was about in the fourth grade, I think. And on that valentine's card he sent me he said we bear hunters ain't we roy that
1: was
2: his dad <laughs> alvin david's dad yeah his dad he said we bear hunters aren't we, we bear roy? hunters buddy <laughs> 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 and what grade would he how old would you have been we was in the fourth grade so ever have ever when that was how long ago would that? So be? About, n- about nine years old bro. Eight, yeah eight, nine, something like that so
1: you stuck with you went ahead and just stuck with that identity didn't you
2: yeah <laughs> yeah. His daddy sort of left us coming and went some. He's back now, maybe he'll stay. But that boy Rachana ain't never fired a day, buddy.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: <laughs> mm-hmm. I love him, I'm- Yeah, I
0: love it too.
1: Yep.
2: That, that just shows you, Clay, what it, I mean. It means to us. You all know,
1: right. it, it's uh, it's beyond just uh, going out and having a big time hunting. Yeah. It's uh, beyond just uh, um, a group of guys here hanging out in, in Roy's house. You know, yeah. it, it's our life. Um, yeah. You know, it, it's uh, something we've all grown up doing, all the way back through, and it's just uh,
2: it's a bond. Yeah. Yeah. It really is. It really is. Son, he won't leave you, buddy. He won't leave you out there. I don't care how long yesterday.
1: Yeah. I wanted to get a perspective from Mr. Roy about moonshine in the region. Part of this section you would have heard in part one of this series.
2: My daddy and grandpa and uncle and some of their close friends and stuff probably turned me against the drinking and stuff because they stay drunk all the time.
1: So and you don't drink? No, I ain't never drunk. Yet. So you you, sit, you saw the moonshine as a negative thing. You know, because there's a, there's a stereotype. This region is known for making moonshine and liquor, and it's kind of been glorified in some way. But there was well, a lot of real negative stuff that came with that if as there well.
2: Was any, if there was anything to moonshine that was good out of it, to me, would have been selling it and getting the money to have to live on. Yeah. Other than that, I didn't see nothing good out of it. Yeah. And I always thought to myself, I ain't going to never drink because I, I put up with it my whole life and I ain't going to be like that. Mm. Uh, for somebody to have to put up with me like that. Yeah.
1: We've now heard from Mr. Roy and Mr. Ira Jones. We've heard them talk about their bear hunting and dogs and a bit about moonshine. Now I want to shift gears and talk again with Dr. Daniel Pierce of the University of North Carolina Asheville. He's an author and national authority on the Southern Appalachian culture and I want to talk with him about moonshine, NASCAR, and bear hunting. All of these things he's written extensively about in his books. You can look some of them up. And we'll tiptoe in to the bonus topic that I did not want to advertise, but I'm about to leak it out. Snake handling churches. So tell me about how liquor played an influence in the culture here.
3: It was huge. You know, for one thing, my mother doesn't like this at all. You know, you know, culturally, you know, one of the things that this Scots Irish brought was uh, the uh, Gaelic word. I can't even pronounce it, but for liquor, it's like water of life. You know, mm. <laughs> <laughs> And so I mean, it was it was uh, you know it's a big part of life. It was just common. It, it, it yeah. And, you know, I mean, you know, there are stories. Even I think, though they were Protestants, a lot of them even were though they're I mean, you know, prohibition doesn't doesn't come into the picture really until the late 1800s, early 20th century. There was no disability. I mean, you could be a Baptist preacher, you know, and, you know, Jack Daniels, um, who was it? his, I think it was his adopted father, you know, who taught him, you know, how to make liquor, supposedly, you know, was a preacher, you know. So there wasn't any sort of disability, you know, during that period of the um, of the late 1700s and first half of the, or really to the end of the 1800s about making or drinking liquor as long as you, you know, the churches would frown on people being drunk all the time or being abusive and stuff. But, you know, liquor was a big part of culture. It was a big part of medicine. Hmm. Uh, you know, people would say, okay, here here are good herbs, but you really need the liquor to make it work. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, of course, the liquor made you at least feel a little better. You know, it dulled yeah. the pain, you know, that type of thing. So it was a big part of cures. Did the actual distillation of what would become
1: known as moonshine was that process unique to America or was that exactly what they were doing yeah. in Ireland yeah
3: yeah it's same it's, thing. it's the same thing yeah and again okay. in a lot of cases they you know they would bring a small steel with them the cultural importance the economic importance is 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 huge and people have this notion about subsistence and how people provided for all their own needs but there' are certain things you can't do with that, one of those things is you can't pay your taxes. You can't pay your property mm-hmm. tax, and these people had to pay property tax in order to keep their land. There weren't a lot of ways to get cash. You could There were some like medicinal herbs, like ginseng in particular, that had high value, or you sold hogs or cattle. But the most dependable source of cash for people in this region, and this continued after you get into the federal excise tax, which makes most much of it production illegal, is liquor. So in the,
1: just in the 20th century, there was a prohibition on liquor. I'm trying to find out how this was, this was illegal because there was a time when it wasn't. So there was a prohibition on liquor and people were making it illegally. And then number two, I guess it would have been people making untaxed liquor or or making liquor illegally and and it not being taxed. So describe to me how it was, became...
3: So yeah, tattered. so original, I mean, people look at this, you know, and, and talk about moonshine, and they say, oh, Prohibition. And I say, well, for 40 years or so, it's not Prohibition. Because 1862, the U.S. Congress passes a uh, an excise tax on liquor, which is still in effect to this day. Now, that had been tried once before by Alexander Hamilton, resulting in the Whiskey Rebellion in Pennsylvania, and widespread ignoring of it in other parts of the country. Thomas Jefferson got elected at least partly because he pledged that when he got elected that excise tax on liquor was going away and it did. <laughs> and so for, you know, for, you know, up until 1862, you know, from roughly 1801 to 18 well actually and, and, and before Alexander Hamilton, it was perfectly legal to make Anybody liquor. could make it. Anybody can untaxed. make it. it. Yeah, sell it any amount 1862 they of course this is in the midst of the Civil War it didn't have much in, impact or it didn't, it didn't have any impact in the Confederate States but then once the wars over with they're subject to this excise tax so you had to make a decision to pay the tax one in order to get a license. To make liquor, you had to make a significant amount. Most of these people are making, you know, relatively small amounts for their own consumption and for, you know, as a as a barter item or, or you know a cash item, and they're not making enough to qualify. Even if you are, and if you're making, you know, right just over the limit. You're not making enough to you make know. any profit. I can see what's happening here. They're getting set up for kind of a outlaw yeah. liquor culture. Well, you can't. Yeah. Okay. Again, this is deeply embedded in their culture. This is incredibly and then important. And all of a sudden, the, the government
1: comes right. in, who they probably distrust anyway. Well,
3: it's the federal government, taxes. you know, in Confederate states. You know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and, and of course, a train wreck waiting there, to happen. There are plenty of Unionists like my kin, you know, who my great great grandfather fought in the. The Union Cavalry, you know, mm-hmm. and so and that whole thing of independence and this is my right, you know, this yeah. is my God given right to make liquor, and and of course, you know, the not a lot of respect for the federal government in in much of the region, and even people that supported the Union didn't didn't think it was appropriate for the government to do this, you know, and again, for for for, for most people, and you know, they couldn't make any profit off of making it legally and paying yeah. the tax, and so you have to ask your question, okay, am I going to do make it legally? That's pretty much out of the question for most people. Or am I going to quit making it? Or am I going to make it illegally? And, and there is kind of a misconception uh, uh, about moonshine because not everybody who's making moonshine is like a career moonshine maker you know these are see. mainly small farmers who make it in the you know in the off months it's it's kind of an off yeah. you know uh, after the harvest and before you start planting yeah uh, and it's cooler that's a better time to make liquor anyway you don't want to make it in hot weather it's hard mm. it's it's it, it doesn't make as good a liquor and so you know that's part of their seasonal thing you mm. know and so most people are doing it again you know not making a lot but now of course they have to get more creative in terms, they can't just go walk in the store now, <laughs> you know, with a load of yeah. liquor and, and exchange yeah. it or, or, or get cash for it. So they got to find new ways to mm. to market it.
1: And then when Prohibition comes in, in the 30s, when did Prohibition? Prohibition
3: I mean. comes in actually in much of the Southern Appalachian region. Most states passed um, what were called local option laws where like a county or a municipality could make their liquor laws and so they may say you can't make liquor within so many miles of a school or a church mm. or something like that and 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 pretty quickly a lot of counties go dry mm. and then you get statewide movements like North Carolina for instance becomes a dry state in in one of the first in the south in uh, 1909 1909 so well before national prohibition much of the South. And Does much that of the mean you couldn't buy or sell? Can't buy, sell, make. Uh, wow. Legally, you know, and so this wow. is, this eliminates the legal thing, which is great if you're an illegal producer. Prohibition's the best thing that ever happened to these guys
1: because dem- demand because the demand up.
3: skyrockets for them because there's no legal production, there's no legal sale.
1: This is a good place to give an overview. National prohibition was in effect from 1920 to 1933. And during this time, making or selling alcohol was illegal. So overnight, distilling liquor became an incredibly profitable business. However, in many states and counties, it was illegal long before that. And many made it illegally to avoid taxation and permitting. Maybe this is obvious, but moonshine got its name because distillers made liquor at night under the light of the moon. The process requires heat, which means you have to have fire, and fire makes smoke, which can be seen in the daylight. Prohibition led to a period of organized crime that was fueled by distillers. Speakeasies started to pop up all over the country, which were basically secret and illegal bars where illicit alcohol was served.
5: Dooley was a good old boy, he lived below the mill, Dooley had three daughters.
1: Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame when you use code BEAR, B-E-A-R, BEAR. That's AuraFrames.com. Use code BEAR at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Montana Knife Company was founded by Josh Smith. One of the world's most experienced master bladesmiths. He's been making knives for 30 years. Made in the USA and manufactured locally in Montana. The knives come with a multi-generational warranty and free sharpening. Designed, tested, and built by hunters, MKC is a hunting knife company first and foremost. They have the sharpest knives out of the box and the easiest knives to sharpen. And that is the dadgum truth. You better be careful with them when you get them. They are sharp. MKC is a fast-growing company. They just hired their 55th employee and are looking to hire about 50 more in the next year or so. I've carried a lot of these Montana knives And the one that I like the most is their Speed Goat, which is a lightweight hunting knife, just the right size. MKC knives sell out within minutes of being released. So head over to MontanaKnifeCompany.com. They have new knives for sale every Thursday at 7 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. So check their website and sign up for their text and email alerts. That is the best way to find out when they have knives available. Use code BEARGREASE10 for 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company, working knives for working people. The old timers say that the turkeys start gobbling when the leaves are as big as squirrel's ears and the red buds start popping. And we're about there. And we are there in the South. The Onyx Hunt app is one of my most valuable tools in the spring woods. With tools like coniferous versus deciduous tree distribution layer, you can save time by locating edges or transition areas of mixing habitats from home. Find an area like this with water in close proximity, and more than likely, there will be a goblin turkey nearby. Knowing the exact boundaries of private ground ensures I stay on the right side of the fence, but can easily find public ground to go see if I can't strike a gobbler. If you do get one to sound off, using compass mode and waypoints will help you pinpoint his exact location, allowing you to move in and make the perfect setup to bring him right into your lap. Download the Onyx Hunt app today. You'll be glad you did. Onex has a special offer for you. Use code BearGrease to receive twenty percent off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt this spring. Back
3: to Doctor Pierce. You know there's a, is some evidence that that prohibition may have lowered consumption a little, but yeah, it, it, the it's demand does not go away. Clear that it's a it's a
1: set. I mean, like if you. If you understand culture at all, you see how this would become something that would be in some ways very negatively viewed upon by some groups and then other groups very positively, just like it would become significant in the culture just by the way the laws were set up. And
3: particularly in rural areas. I mean, you know, you get most of your prohibition put coming out of the towns and and the growing cities and, you know, mill owners are very interested in it because they don't want their workers drinking, you know, and, yeah. and and there's a racial component, too. They want to keep alcohol out of the hands of African-Americans because hmm. they see that as a disruptive thing uh, and potential trouble there. Hmm. Uh, and so a lot of this actual prohibition stuff comes in alongside white supremacy campaigns and hmm. Jim Crow laws and stuff like that, you know, in the early 20th century. Let me, let me ask you this. I, I had somebody that
1: I really respect— Give this perspective to me, and he's an Appalachian guy, big time he said that the moonshiners, and I think he was particularly talking about the moonshiners during prohibition, were like the meth dealers of our time, and so his whole point is, why are we glorifying these guys that had such a negative effect on society and yeah. and i and I'm certain there are place there are situations where what he's saying is like. 100 true because he said he said clay there's been a lot of appalachian women and kids beaten neglected because of moonshine and you know and he had a strong point to me tell me do you feel like that's yeah. an accurate
3: depiction well it's part of the story and uh you know there are and actually there are families that you, you can trace and say okay moonshine i made moonshine in the you know you know, and that continues. And then they get into the late sixties or something that market dries up, they start growing marijuana, you know, and then later they're going to move into meth and stuff like that. So that, that happens. And for sure, uh, moonshine, you know, not always in, in, uh, homage to my mother, you know, always have to point out the negative sides of this, you know? So there, there are a lot of, there's a lot of downside to it, you know, in terms of, of, you know, what it did to families. The other thing is that people kind of now, because there's kind of a craft, almost craft moonshine (laughs) movement now, you know, and then the quote legal moonshine business, you know, and there are these notions about, oh, these fine liquor makers. You know, most of the stuff they made was just horrible. I mean, and they would put, and of course, you know, because it's not regulated, who knows what's in it, Mm. you know, and they used all kinds of things from chicken manure to, lie to Buckeyes to, you know, anything, because what they wanted to do, well, and, and w- one other thing, when Prohibition comes on big time, the whole recipe for liquor changes, and it's much less corn mm. and a lot of refined sugar, which which distills much quicker and at a higher proof mm. than, than just corn. You know, the traditional recipe was, you know, basically, you got cornmeal, you got corn malt and water, and you let it sit for a week and you know, in, in barrels or something like that and it makes what they call a beer and then you take that, you pour it in the still, and you distill it, you know, and it goes through the coil and all that. But that changes, you know, and this and this uh, sugar liquor as they call it, you know, I mean we call it bust head and stingo and it's just bad stuff. And again you don't know what's in it. You know, mm-hmm. and again, particularly later when you get like people start using galvanized metal, I mean that gets you get a lot of So you of,
1: get some people Getting sick Or
3: dying well, You get people dying liquor. Yeah because of the lead Acetate oh, really? You know that, that goes into it People are, are Using you know Car radiators For condensers You know mm. So you don't know And so there You know There are a lot of Potential problems On the other side of that And I think The thing that's missing From a lot of Moonshine stories Is that for a lot of people They were involved In this business For a relatively Short period of time Usually probably As a young man Or as You know One thing I, I found lots of women uh, involved, particularly in selling, you know, widows, women who've been abandoned. And so people use it as kind of an insurance kind of thing or as a way as a young person to get together, you know, what they call a grub stake, you know, make mm-hmm. some cash money, mm-hmm. buy land or, you know, do whatever, you know, and then you go. It, I've got a friend who's written a really good book called The Spirits of Just Men, and he kind of looks at his own family history as kind of a framework for this book on moonshine. And his grandfather told him like when he was an eight, he had no clue. His grandfather was like a pillar of the community in a rural community in, in Virginia. Just, you know, he deacon in the Baptist church and so respected in the community, total teetotaler. And uh, he tells him that, yeah, you know, when I was 14, I, I left home. I went to work in a cotton mill. And uh, when I had enough money, I got a car. And then I hard, uh, started hauling liquor to West Virginia through the coal. Mm-hmm. And uh it was like he was shocked, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so, you know, he couldn't believe it, but you know, he made enough money. He comes back home with this money, he buys land again, and he's the pillar of the community, you know, mm-hmm. and nobody and never breathes a word of what he'd mm-hmm. done. So there's mm-hmm. so many families. So again, there's that negative side, but there's also this side where it was, again, for a lot of people, you know, way that they could hold on to their land or buy yeah. land or, you know, get started in life or, or get through a bad patch in their life. And one of the things, because there's kind of this notion about moonshiners kind of being these ignorant rednecks, mm-hmm. you know, stupid, overall-wearing hillbilly. A lot of your moonshiners were your more, I think, intelligent entrepreneurial types. Mm. And some of these people, you know, got pretty successful yeah. at it. In fact, if you look, one of the things, there are a lot of things I can't prove, but I believe pretty strongly. You can look at some major, or well, lots of businesses and even major international corporations who got their start and finance capital from proceeds of Ill- illegal alcohol. Because hmm. these people, you know, and if you're really good at it, and, and some of these people, you know, by the well, 20s, 30s, 40s, they're making millions. Wow. And if you got that much cash, you can't walk into a bank with it. You got to do something with it. You got to do something with it. And yeah. so, you know, you can see, and it, it's really interesting to look at some of these really heavily, you know, counties that have a lot of a big reputation in terms of moonshine and then look at some of the corporations that come out of these places. You got to mm. ask, okay, you know, or banks even. They got their start in some old got money. Their, got their, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know so again there it's a uh, it's an you know for, for, for most people though it's 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 part of subsistence you know it's yeah. part of getting by it's part of paying my property taxes yeah.
1: this is a good place to tell you a family story related to moonshine my family such stories are fairly common in this part of the world you may remember my sweet mother judy from a few podcasts back we call her juju She's as close to a perfect mom as possible, but there are a few mysterious secrets lurking in our family's past. Her father, Houston Millsap, was born in 1916 near Waldron, Arkansas. He became a teenager during the peak of federal prohibition. The full story isn't known, but he worked for a family of moonshiners that the authorities were dead set on busting. We don't think he was involved in actually making liquor, but he was associated with this family. When he was 16 years old, he was apprehended and questioned about his knowledge of the illegal operation. His mouth was sealed shut and he would not leak a drop of information. This is where some of the mystery lies. I don't know how they got away with this, but because he wouldn't talk they sent him away to a juvenile detention center for an extended period of time my mother was told that quote when he came back he was skinny and wouldn't talk about what happened there couple of things here potentially positive and negative when my father spoke of his father-in-law he said Houston was honest to a fault He wouldn't turn in those moonshiners even when it would have gotten him out of trouble. This was viewed as honorable. However, my mother and wife collectively said to me, Clay, if your son was working for some meth dealers and went to jail because he wouldn't tell on them, do you think that would be honorable? The time in that detention center changed Houston's life most likely for the worst. These ladies make a strong point. With that story, we're going to switch gears. Dr. Pierce wrote a book called Real NASCAR, White Lightning, Red Clay, and Big Bill, France. I wanted to get some context on NASCAR. Dr. Pierce, tell me how NASCAR fits into Appalachian culture.
3: Well, first off, when I first started doing research on, on NASCAR, I really thought, because a lot of, it's you know, when you get into the details and stuff, it's always a lot more complicated than you think. You know, a lot of the stereotypes and the standard stories are, you know, are kind of myths and stuff. And so the myth of NASCAR, you know, was the whole, these moonshiners were, you know, when mm. the automobile came in, you know, they got very good at modifying them and they were outrunning the law, you know, and these, mm. these uh, you know, I don't know if you know the movie Thunder Road or anything, you know, or the Dukes of Hazard, you know, that kind right, of thing. Right. You know, so these good old boys, you know, and hopping up these cars, you know, we come and then they start racing, you know, and that and so okay. I thought, you know, that's that's a great story, and I, and for sure there were people like that. I mean, Junior Johnson is a very much a legend, you know, and he obviously he he had a criminal record. He served time in the federal penitentiary, you know, mm-hmm. for moonshine. His family had deep roots, you know, and I thought, well, there's some Junior Johnsons, but that's exaggerated, and so and so I really thought, you know, what I'd find was that moonshine didn't have that much of an impact but as i put it in the introduction of the book i said the deeper i looked the more liquor i found and so uh, <laughs> it just really permeated and so most of the most of the early drivers were people that gained their first high-speed driving experience behind the wheel of a car mm-hmm. hauling liquor you know mm-hmm. you know and, and developed mechanical ability but but then as the sport develops in the late thirties and early forties, you know, you see people who are mechanics, I mean, you know, a good way to make a living in, any of these regions was to work on cars and particularly moonshiners cars because they pay cash you know (laughs) and so uh, you know so some of these people got really good you know some of the moonshiners themselves but you know local mechanics got really good because they had a lot of money to work on things and the center to do that you know Mm -hmm. and so then that translates into racing then you got okay these people have cash they need to do something with so a lot of the promoters were people who were kind of big time in the liquor business and they're Moving cash And then even the people That built the racetracks In the early days A lot of them were Liquor money Were liquor money So did NASCAR start here? NASCAR starts You know technically In Daytona Okay Daytona Beach Bill France uh, Who was a mechanic Who moved to the area And he gets involved They originally Raced on the beach At Daytona That was the biggest race Of the year But then it spreads Through the region And as it spreads Through the region These moonshiners start coming in and all of a sudden you got people like Lloyd C. He shows up in Atlanta at Lakewood Speedway for one of the first big stock car races there. He's eighteen years old, nobody's heard of him, and he wins the race. You know well, the Atlanta Constitution has an article the next day that says Nobody heard of Lloyd C, and he comes out of nowhere to, be, you know, to win this race against some of the top race drivers in the country. And, you know, it said nobody heard of him except for the Atlanta police. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, yeah. and at eighteen, he already had a long record and oh, reputation. Wow. You know, for Holland. Lincoln hey, I of heard Dawson a County guy Jordan.
1: say the other day. He said. Uh, he said, if you want to find the real race car drivers, he said, find the revenue officers that were good at catching these guys. <laughs>
3: Well, the revenue officers were generally outgunned because <laughs> yeah. they were driving some crappy government car, you yeah, know. And this yeah. guy had, you know, every performance part you could buy to California, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, on it. So uh, and so, yeah, all the way from, you know, Bill France. Uh, I mean, there's some questions about Bill France, but you know, and the France family still owns a NASCAR. Mm. he, he definitely knew lots of people and, you know, he always denied that he knew anything about it, but he knew, and and actually was business partners with lots of people. And again, m- you know, most of the people, again, track owners, promoters, car owners, mechanics, and then drivers themselves, you know, were people who got their experience or their money, you know, out of illegal liquor. So the very foundation mm. of NASCAR is illegal liquor. That is interesting NASCAR doesn't like to talk about that, yeah. but it's it's
1: foundational, you know I tell you who else can drive good in the Appalachians and that's bear hunters um <laughs> modern day bear hunters uh trying to cut off dog races yeah. tell me tell me what you know about bear hunting with hounds not we we earlier we talked about how uh there was a free range hog culture here pretty dominant, and those guys would have like for sure, been using dogs to round it up. Is that where we? Uh, or well, North Carolina, this part of the world has such a rich history with hound hunting from the plot hound, right. which is the state dog of North Carolina, right. which was a bear and hog dog, a
3: big game dog. Tell me what you know about bear hunting with hounds. And- yeah, this is part of the German influence, actually. You know, the hunting with hounds because again, it's a, it's, it's more of a, and I guess people who, who, who work for the nobility, you know, brought those skills and brought dogs with them. Right, right. In many cases. And so, you know, these breeds develop, but you know, bear hunting early on in particular, of course, hunting becomes important for subsistence. Bear grease and, you know, maybe a bear hide or something could be good, but it's not exactly necessary for your subsistence. But it's a communal activity I mean traditionally The way bears are hunted You know And again this is Yeah You know you go back To the Cherokee And what these people Learned from the Cherokee But again They're bringing something New to the equation Which is Which are hounds And so But it's an important Communal activity And you, and you go I mean even today You know you go I mean it's like uh, It's generational Yeah You know You got the The old guy You know Who's been doing it For years And has that that deep knowledge and then the younger guys who can still run the mounts, and then the kids you know you see Mm -hmm. you know a lot of boys and you and you'll see girls these days you know out with these folks on a bear hunt here is our secret topic my
1: curiosity pushed me to ask dr pierce about the snake handling churches of appalachia made famous by some recent television shows Honestly, I'm hesitant to bring it up for fear that drawing attention to this would paint an untrue picture of the vast majority of Christians in Southern Appalachia, but I decided to leave in this portion of our interview. You'll have a greater chance of being struck by lightning than meeting someone who handles snakes for ceremony. It's extremely rare. I also want to say that I believe deeply in religious freedom. So my intent is not to mar anyone's reputation or bring into question their motives, but purely to peer with a curious eye into the snake-handling phenomena. Dr. Pierce, you hear of these snake-handling churches in the Appalachians. And I know that there are churches that do that. How common is that? Is that sensationalized? And kind of where did that start?
3: Yeah, it is sensationalized, you know, and of course, you know, Cable's picked up on, I think there was a, uh, a show called uh, Snake Salvation or something like that, yeah, you yeah. know, on, on some cable channel, you know. But And it's something, you know, it's kind of an interesting history in terms, it grows out of um, Cleveland, Tennessee area. And there's a guy in that area named George Hensley, who a lot of the start of this is credit to, who's, who's, who's kind of alternately a preacher and a, I don't know rounder moonshiner you've know? okay. <laughs> okay. depended you know okay. he would okay. repent and come back but he you know he takes is it mark 16 i think right there's a biblical uh, passage in right, the gospel you know, says, says yeah and, and and it's really interesting someone who's interested in religious history as well but that someone didn't do this earlier you know did it totally have its roots here uh in, i mean nowhere else in the world they were handling know,
1: snakes uh, no not that i know of and it's and it's the one it's the one scripture that says you'll hand handle deadly serpents and will not be harmed right essentially yeah, and is what and it drink says.
3: poison and stuff like that. so you see this type of thing you know they'll drink strychnine in, in some of these so you know this is early 20th century and it and it and it kind of becomes just for a variety of reasons you know i mean it's you know it's hard to you know why do people do things religiously, but I think, you know, it, 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 does relate to, you know, these are very rural churches. They're, they're, uh, very poor congregations, uh, generally, you know, partly it, you know, it is something that gives, that'll definitely give you some distinction in your community if you're willing to grab yeah. a rattlesnake, yeah. you know, and, 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 and hold it up. And, and one of the things that's really, and I, I've never actually witnessed it in person. I know, a number of people that have, and the thing that, you know, that even people, I remember I had a, a Jewish friend in graduate school and she actually saw this and, uh, and her reaction was just like, you know, I just can't believe the faith. And actually there've been several accounts of, mm-hmm. of, of scholars or reporters or people who have been covering this and they get kind of sucked into it themselves. It's kind of weird. There's a very famous book called Salvation on Sand Mountain, a guy named Dennis Covington, who was a reporter for the New York Times. Mm. He ends up handling snakes. You know, and it's it's wow. it's kind of a seduction in some. Again, it's, it, it's relatively small. You did have a period in the uh, like late 20s uh, and into the 1930s where, it. I mean, you would have big outdoor meetings, you know, with hundreds if not thousands of people you know in some parts of the region and then the government started cracking down because people were were dying really the government came in and the said it's it illegal in most states and it maybe Ill- illegal everywhere so hmm. to do this and you know there've been a number of court cases you know like endangering children and you know things oh, like this but it's you know it's it's small and it's really small now yeah. but it still happens you know and you kind of it kind of goes in waves yeah you know, it'll kind of pop up you know and and you know in a place and then in all of a sudden you got uh this but uh you know and of course you know the stereotype is every church in the region right, you know which is just like not true okay when they're gonna pull out the snakes you know it, you know it's it's it, it's it's a very <laughs> do small
1: you, you, do you think and 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 i have a religious background for sure it seems like maybe early on and 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 I, and I don't know I haven't seen these documentaries these newer ones about snake. I don't know a lot about it. I mean perhaps maybe there was some genuineness inside of it maybe at one time and then at least what I see portrayed feels like some of the newer stuff is kind of sensationalism yeah. like like yeah. purposeful sensationalism and I'm I'm Putting judgment on people and things I don't I don't know about, but I mean, do you think that would be true? Yeah, and I think
3: partly you know the conditions that made it meaningful to people are not as common. Okay, and so yeah, and it is a way. <laughs> you know, if you want to attract attention to yourself, it's definitely a way to do it. And there are always you know some documentary that wants to come film you or, or reporter that wants to do a story <laughs> on it. You know, <laughs> yeah. and uh, and particularly when you know when somebody dies you know and it and you know you know their cost to being involved because most of the famous people ended up dying from snake pie, wow. even though they may have been bit like george hansley eventually dies from snake bite even though he'd been bit dozens if not more wow. Uh, wow. times
1: how does that fit with what with all that you know of appalachian culture does that just like fit in or is that just such a small minor thing that it's kind of irrelevant does that is that a fair question yeah I, I think there are some
3: things again you know the the appeal as you might think you know is limited yeah you know, <laughs> to a certain uh i don't know to i guess a certain personality or or something but i think there are some things in the region that do kind of lend itself to that and uh, you know part of it you know there's a strong dose and a lot of Southern Appalachian religion, fatalism—that—that that plays into that. There's a, you know, part of something that if you're in really bad circumstances, uh, like my my life is pretty confining and drab and tragic in some ways. But here is a way that I can transcend all that. You know, it's hard to imagine what the, you know, most people can't imagine it. I don't think, you know, but 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 what the emotions of that would be. You know, mm-hmm. it 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 would be a powerful thing, and so I think the material conditions of the region, yeah, do you know, did at least you know, I think uh, feed into that.
1: Appalachia is a fascinating and beautiful place with a diverse mix of incredible people and families that have been crafted by a complicated history. There are people with a journey tied close to the land. Honestly, every place on earth has such a story, and they're all important stories. I find myself often rooting for the underdog, for the piece of the story that's untold, or for the people who are misunderstood, or the people whose story isn't always told correctly. I can't tell all those stories, but maybe the ones I do tell can spur us to dig deeper into the stories of those all around us. I continue to stand on the premise that our appreciation of our own culture makes us more likely to value the culture of another. In closing, I believe that an authentic connection to the land helps define part of our humanity, whether it be through bear hunting with hounds or farming tomatoes like Mr. Roy, or simply by going on a hike where you live and taking a moment to be formally amazed at the architecture and complexity of a tree. However you do it, I hope it will cause you to ponder your own significance on this planet. Long live the regional cultures of this incredible place called planet Earth. Hey, Please leave us a big fat review on iTunes and tell all your pals about this here podcast. Thanks.
0: They're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose Interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today. Sport Dog is the most recognized
1: brand in the hunting dog training industry. The Sport Dog promise to customers is simple gear the way you design it every product sport dog builds is meticulously designed and rigorously tested in the field ensuring it withstands the toughest conditions you and your dog may encounter using tracking equipment on my squirrel and coon dogs is extremely important to me get 20 percent off your first purchase using the code BearGrease. go to www.sportdog.com beargrease grease to learn more